Part four, chapter four of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Well, that was the morning, old man. That was the first part, and you see how it went. He was pretty badly in the depths, but he was holding on. He got this great discovery of his, and the idea of writing about it after his history, he said. If I'm ever able to take up my history again, he said. Badly down as he was, at least he'd got that, and he'd also got to help him the extraordinary, reasonable, reasoning view he took of the whole business. No bitterness against anyone. Just understanding their point of view, as he always has understood the other point of view. Just that, and puzzling over it all. On the whole, and considering all things, not too bad. Not too bad. Bad. Desperately pathetic, I thought, but not too bad. That was the morning. He wouldn't come to lunch with us. He hadn't liked meeting my wife as it was. And of course I could understand how he felt, poor chap. So I left him. I left him. When I saw him again it was about three o'clock, and I walked right into the middle of the development that, as I told you, had pretty well let the roof down on him. I strolled round to his hotel, a one-horse sort of place off the front. He was in the lobby. No one else there. Only a man who'd just been speaking to him, and who left him and went out as I came in. Sabre had two papers in his hands. He was staring at them, and you'd a thought from his face he was staring at a ghost. What do you think they were? Guess. Man alive. The chap I'd seen going out just served them on him. They were divorce papers. The citation and petition papers that have to be served personally. Divorce papers. His wife had instituted divorce proceedings against him naming the girl Effie. Yes, you can whistle. You can whistle. I couldn't. I had too much to do. He was knocked out, right out. I got him up to his room, tried to stuff a drink into him. Couldn't. Stuffed it into myself, too. Wanted them pretty badly. Well, I tell you, it was pretty awful. He sat on the bed with the papers in his hand, gibbering, just gibbering. No other word for it. Was his wife mad? Was she crazy? Had she gone out of her mind, he to be guilty of a thing like that? He capable of a beastly thing like that? She to believe he was that? His wife, Mabel, was it possible? A vile, hideous, sordid intrigue with the girl employed in his own house? Effie! Effie? His wife to believe that? An unspeakable, beastly thing like that? He tried to show me with his finger the words on the paper, his finger shaking all over the thing. Hapgood, Hapgood, do you see this vile, obscene word here? I guilty of that? My wife Mabel think be capable of that? Do you see what they call me, Hapgood? They call me by implication, what my wife Mabel thinks I am. What am I to be pointed at and called? Adulterer? Adulterer? My God! My God! Adulterer! Adulterer! The word makes me sick. The very word is like poison in my mouth. And I am to swallow it. It is to be me. Me, my name, my title, my brand. Adulterer. Adulterer. I tell you, old man, I tell you. I managed to get him talking about the practical side of it. That is, I managed to make him listen while I talked. I told him the shop of the business. Told him that these papers had to be served on him personally, as they had been, and on the girl, too. I said I guessed that the solicitor's clerk I'd seen going out had been down to Penny Green the previous day, or the day before, and served them on Effie, and got his address from her. 
I told him the first step was that within eight days he had to put in an appearance at the probate and divorce registry and enter a defense. Just intimate that he intended to defend the action, do you see? And that the girl would have to, too. After that, no doubt he'd instruct solicitors, and that, of course, I'd be glad to take on the job for him. Well, all of this jargon, me being mighty glad to have anything to keep talking about, you understand, all of this jargon there were only two bits he froze on to, and froze on hard, I can tell you. I thought he was going mad the way he went on. I still think he may. That's why I'm frightened about him. He just sat there on the bed while I talked and kept saying to himself, Adulterer, adulterer, me, adulterer. It was awful. What he caught on to was what I told him about appearing at the divorce registry within eight days and about instructing a solicitor afterwards. He said he'd go to the registry at once, at once, at once, and he said, very impolitely, poor chap, that he'd instruct no infernal solicitors. He'd do the whole thing himself. He had the feeling, I could see, that he must be spruning this horrible thing, and spruning it at once, and spruning it himself. He was like a chap with his clothes on fire crazy only to rush into water and get rid of it. The stigma of the thing was so intolerable to him that his feeling was that he couldn't sit by and let other people defend him and do the business for him. He must do it himself, hurl it back with his own hands, shout it back with his own throat. He'll calm down and get more reasonable in time, no doubt, and then I'll have another go at him about running the case for him. But anyway, there was one thing he could do pretty well there and then, and that was enter his defense at the registry. So I took charge of him to help him ease his mind that much. I took charge of him. He wasn't capable of thinking of anything for himself. I packed his bag and paid his bill and took him round to our hotel, and it wasn't far off then to the train my wife and I had fixed to get back on. I told my wife what had happened, and she played the brick. You see, the chap was like as if he was dazed, like as if he was walking in a trance, just did what he was told and said nothing. So we played it up on that. My missus and I, we just sort of took him along without consulting him or seeming to take any notice of him. It was too late to do anything that night when we got up to town. He made a bit of a fuss, lost his temper, and swore. I was trying to hinder him, but my wife managed him a treat. By Jove, she was marvelous with him, and we got him round to our flat and put him up for the night. I pushed him off to bed early, but I heard him walking up and down his room hours after and talking to himself, talking in tones of horror. Me, me, adulterer. That was rather dreadful hearing the poor chap. You see, what was the matter with him was, being the frightfully clean, intensely refined sort of chap he is, appalling horror at being thought by his wife, who knew him so well, capable of what was so repulsive to his mind. He loathed the very sound of the word that was used against him. Obscene, he kept on calling it. He was like a man falling in a mire and plucking at the filthy stuff all over him, and reeking of it, and not able to eat or sleep or think or do anything but go mad with it. That was how it got him, like that. Next morning, that's this morning, you understand, he was a little more normal, able to realize things a bit. I mean, thanked my wife for putting him up, and hoped he hadn't been horribly rude or anything last night. More normal, you see, still in a panic fever to be off, and stayed at the registry that he was going to defend the action, but normal enough for me to see it that it was all right for him to go straight home immediately, after, and tell the girl what she had to do, and all of that. I told him, by the way, that it would pretty well have to come out now, ultimately, who the child's father was. 
the girl would practically have to give that up in the end to clear him you know i told him that in the cab going along down he ground his teeth over it it was horrible to hear him he said he'd kill the chap if he could ever discover him ground his teeth and said he'd kill him now after this well he got through his business about twelve just a formality you know declaring his intention to defend then a thing happened i can't think now what it meant we were waiting for a cab near the law courts he had his bag he was going straight on to the station a cab was just pulling in when a man came up an ordinary enough looking cove tall chap and touched sabre and said mr sabre sabre said yes and the chap said very civilly mind i speak to you a minute sir they went aside i wasn't looking at them i was watching a chap on a bike tumble off in front of a motor bus near as a toucher run over suddenly someone shoved past me and there was old sabre getting into a cab with this chap who had come up to him i said hello hello are you off we arranged you see to part there i had to get back to my chambers he turned round on me a face gray as ashes absolutely dead gray i'd never seen such a color in a man's face he said yes i'm off and sort of fell over his stick into the cab the man who was already in righted him onto the seat and said paddington to the driver who was at the door shutting it i said through the window sabre old man are you ill what's up shall i come with you he put his head towards me and said in the most extraordinary voice speaking between his clenched teeth as though he was keeping himself from yelling out he said if you love me hapgood get right away from it from me and let me alone this man happens to live at tidborough i know him we're going down together i said sabre he clenched his teeth so that they were all bare with his lips contracting he said let me alone let me alone let me alone and they pushed off i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm going down there tomorrow i'm frightened about him hapgood had said to his friend of the effect on sabre of mabel's action against him he's crashed the roof's fallen in on him and that had been sabre's own belief but it was not so there are degrees of calamity dumbfounded stunned aghast sabre would not have believed that conspiracy against him of all powers of darkness could conceivably worsen his plight they had shot their bolt he was stricken amain he was in the crucible of disaster and in its heart where the furnace is white but they had not shot their bolt the roof had not yet fallen on him they had discharged but a petard but a mine to effect a breach the timbers of the superstructure had bent and cracked and groaned their bolt was shot the roof crashed in the four sides of his world tottered and collapsed upon him with the words spoken to sabre by the man who approached and took him aside while he stood to take leave of hapgood the man said i dare say you know me by sight mr sabre i've seen you about the town i'm the coroner office at tidborough you're rather wanted down there i've been to brighton after you and followed you here and just took a lucky chance on finding you about this part you're rather wanted down there the fact is that young woman who's been living with you's been found dead sabre's face then took a strange and awful hue that hapgood had marked upon it found dead found dead where in your house mr sabre and her baby dead with her found dead found dead effie and her baby found dead oh dear god catch hold of my arm a minute all right let me go let me go i say can't you found dead what do you mean found dead well sir that's rather for the coroner to say sir there's to be an inquest tomorrow. that's what you're wanted for inquest inquest sabre's speech was thick 
He knew it was thick. His tongue felt enormously too big for his mouth. He could not control it properly. He felt that all his limbs and members were swollen and ponderous and out of his control. Inquest found dead? Inquest found dead? G God, can't you tell me something? You come up to me in the street, and all the place going round and round, and you say to me, found dead? Can't you say anything except found dead? Can't you tell me what you mean, found dead? Eh, can't you? The man said, Now look here, sir, I say that's for the coroner, and the least you say best, sir, if you understand me. Looks as if the young woman took poison. That's all I can say. Looks as if she took poison. Oxalic acid. Oxalic acid. Now see here, sir. You've got no call to say anything to me, and I've no call to say any more to you than I've told you. Is that your cab, sir? Because if so, they went to the cab. One of two questions is commonly the first words articulated by one knocked senseless in a disaster. Recovering consciousness, or recovering a scattered wits, what's happened, he asks, or where am I? In the first shock he has not known he was hurt. He recovers his senses, then is aware of himself, mangled, maimed, delivered to the torturers. In that day, and through the night, Sabre was numb to coherent thought, numb to any realization of the meaning to himself of this that had befallen him. The roof had crashed in upon him, but he lay stunned, as one pin beneath scaffolding knows not his agony till the beams are lifted from him. So stupefaction inhibited his senses until, on the morrow, he was dug down to in the coroner's court, and there awakened. He could not think. Through the day and through the night his mind groped, with outstretched arms as one groping in a dark room, or a blind man tapping with a stick. He could not think. He could attend to things, he could notice things, he could perform necessary actions. But Effie is dead. Effie has killed herself. Effie has killed herself and her child. Now what? In pursuit of these his mind could only grope with outstretched hands. These, in darkened rooms of his calamity, eluded his mind. He groped and stumbled after them. They stole and slipped away. In the train, going down to Tidborough, the man who had costed him permitted himself to be more communicative. A policeman, observing lights burning in the house at midday on Sunday, had knocked, and getting no answer had gone in. He had found the young woman dead on her bed, the baby dead beside her. A tumbler was on a small table, and a bottle of oxalic acid. Salts of lemon, as they call it, said the man. Sabre stared out of the window. Effie has killed herself. Effie has killed herself and her baby. No, he could not fasten upon it. Effie has killed herself. That was what this man was telling him. It circled and spun away from him, as the rushing train the field circled and spun before his vision. He was able to attend to things and do things. At Tidborough he took a cab and drove home and dismissing it at the gate was able to give normal attention to the requirements of the morrow and instruct the man to come out for him at half-past eleven the inquest was at twelve he was able to notice things for years turning the handle and entering this house had been like entering an empty habitation it struck cold now it was like entering a tomb he went into the morning-room no one was there he went into the kitchen no one was there he stood still and tried to think of course no one was here. Effie had killed herself. He climbed to his room, still awkward on the stairs with his leg and stick, and went in and stood before his books and stared at them. He was still staring when it occurred to him that it had grown dusk since he first entered and stared. Effie had killed herself. He went out and along the passage to her room and entered and stared upon the bed. Effie had been found dead. This was where they had found her, dead. 
No, it was gone. He could not get hold of it. He turned and stared about the room. Things seemed to have been taken out of the room. The man had said something about a glass and a bottle. But there was no glass or bottle here. They had taken things out of the room. And they had taken Effie out of the room, picked up Effie and carried her out like an orgasm of terrible emotion surged enormously within him. A bursting thing was in his throat. No, it was gone. What phenomenon had suddenly possessed him? What was the matter? Effie had killed herself. No, he could not get a hold of it. He turned away and began to wander from room to room. In some he lit lights, because you naturally lit lights when it was dark. All night he wandered from room to room, rarely sitting down. All night his mind groped with outstretched hands for that which all night eluded it. In the morning, in the mortuary adjoining the coroner's court, his mind suddenly and with shock most terrible made contact with the calamity it had pursued. In the mortuary, when he arrived and alighted from his cab, he found a small crowd of persons assembled about the yard of the court. Someone said, There he is. Someone said, That's him. A kind of threatening murmur went up from the people. A general movement was made toward him. What was the matter? What were they looking at? They stood in his way. He seemed to be wedged among a mass of dark and rather beastly faces breathing close to his own. He could not get on. He was being pushed. He was caused to stagger. He said, Look out, I've got a game leg. That threatening sort of murmur arose more loudly in answer to his words. Someone somewhere threw a piece of orange peel at someone. It almost hit his face. What was up? What were they all doing? A policeman in the coroner's office came shouldering through the press, and helped him towards the court. He thought it was rather decent of them. The policeman said, You'd better get inside. They're a bit rough. At the door of the court, Sabre looked across to where the other side of the yard some men were shuffling out of a detached building. The coroner's officer said, Jury, they've been viewing the corpse. Corpse! The rough word stabbed through his numbness. He thought, corpse, viewing the corpse. Obscene and horrible phrase. Corpse, Effie. He made a movement in that direction. The man said, yes, perhaps you'd better. They took him across and into the detached building. He was against a glass screen, misty with breaths of those who had stared and peered through it. The policeman wiped his sleeve across the glass. There you are. Ah, now suddenly and with shock most terrible his mind made contact with that which it had pursued it had groped as in a dark room with outstretched hands now suddenly with shock most terrible it was as if those groping hands had touched in the darkness a face ah insupportable this was effie this was bright effie this was that jolly little effie of old million-year-old days this this she lay on a slab inclined towards the glass she was swathed about in cerements only her face was visible. Within the hollow of her arm reposed a little shape, all swathed. She had brought it into the world. She had removed it from the world that would have nothing of it. She had brought a thousand smiles into the world, but she had given offence to the world, and the offended world had thrown back her smiles, and now she had expressed her contrition to the world. This was her contrition that she lay here for men to breathe upon the glass and stare, and rub away the dimness with their sleeves, and breathe and stare again. O oh, unsupportable calamity! O oh, tragedy beyond support! He thought of her as oft, and again he had seen her, those laughing lips, those shining eyes. He thought of her alone when he had left her, planning and preparing this frightful dissolution of her body and her soul. He thought of her in the stupendous moment while the glass paused at her lips. 
He thought of her torment of inward fire by that which had blistered her poor lips. A very terrible groan was broken out of him. They took him along. End of chapter 4 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com